percent of uh, the three listeners are audio only. Awesome. Okay, so um, let's get going. What is this? Um, we, well, we, this we went is, through the math the other day. No, yeah, yeah, but we were going to accelerate. This is podcast. Uh, it's it was supposed somewhere to be between seventy-eight and eighty. Right, I think seventy-eight. What but, people listening to it? No, no, my that brother, would that my brother, but we think he stopped. So now it may be his cat. No. Yeah. His cat. Do we count? Do we count animals in uh, this? Yeah, we have to. Um, so we have a. So we're on episode seventy-eight. We may accelerate it to seventy-five because we have a few in the can. Uh, uh, this is a, a failure of the podcast, and let's go around the horn and introduce ourselves. Let's start with the the man in the video, Sam. Hey, how you doing? I'm Sam Bendet. I've known Dan for the last twenty-two years, so I appreciate him bringing me in. Uh, I'm currently uh, a Russian military analyst with Center for Naval Analysis, and I look forward to the discussion. Uh, there are some caveats, obviously. There are probably some answers I won't be able to, uh, you know, questions I won't, be, I won't be able to answer, but I'll alert you to okay. that, that happens. Okay, and uh, Daniel? Yes, so, uh, you know, I'm, uh, who are you? you know, who am I? <laughs> this is Daniel Barenboim. This is Daniel Barenboim. That's right. Nice to meet you, Sam. I mean, uh, for the last 22 years. Uh, you know, so originally I am a first-generation immigrant from the former Soviet Union. Uh, so some might look at me and say I'm Russian. I couldn't be further from being of Russian. Uh, you know, I have no affiliation. I have okay. no, yeah. uh, you know, I have we all nothing. have Eastern European roots here. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's kind of funny how people still perceive certain okay. things. So, cool. you know, I, I'm a techie, I'm a startup guy. You're a former guest of this podcast. I am a former this guest is of this podcast. This is your third? My how many times second you time. No, it's third. You did one. Oh, I, and I then guess you, you're then right. you had a, Interrogation oh, yeah. with uh, uh, two venture capitalists because that's didn't, right. You yeah. didn't like the yeah. elevator. And after pitch. that, they no. wouldn't even talk to me. No, so we got rid of them. Zia yeah. wouldn't even respond to my emails. They, they don't. They don't respond to anybody's emails. Oh, they don't respond to mine. No. Okay, and who are you? Uh, You've been on this podcast before, like uh, seventy-eight times. The, I, all but one. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. No, oh. but you did guest appearance. No, that was the encyclopedia one. I, I was. Oh, that's there. right. 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 That was the one I we failed to record, but then we recorded right. over vodka. Yes, I'm Mark Thurman. And um, he's a you're just a podcast host. I'm just uh, nobody knows, right? And Sam, I don't know if you had a chance as David introduces himself to review uh, our body of work. <laughs> Hopefully, not. I did not. No, I did not. That's uh, a good move. That's a good move because if you're worried about reputational damage, this is your chance to get out now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Dave Pausner. I uh, do this podcast with Mark. We've had various co-hosts who have had the, the, the good sense to leave, and uh, we're back. So normally we attempt to be funny. We fail miserably at it, Sam. Um, and Daniel's the, 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 mis victim. the unfortunate victim of a few of these. Um, we'll, we'll keep this one as light as we can keep it, given how heavy the subject matter is. But this is very different for us. Yes. And I guess if it's a failure of the podcast, we could talk about the failure of Russia in Ukraine, but it's that's too narrow, and I'm not sure where we want to go with this. But it seems like we, you, you, you two were available. Um, well, we it's all have it's more, than, yeah. Yeah, it's more than availability. I, and again, Sam, I did not know your background, so uh, we won't be going into any any confidential or crazy things on this. Um, this will be our first attempt at being very serious because there's nothing to joke about here. It's uh, in my view, and you well, know, no, it's nothing to joke about, but we'll we'll do our best. We we, and we might be a little bit you know light handed, but uh, for people listening and the three people watching, in no way do I find any aspect of this situation humorous. So let me start with this. Though. Let me start with this. What is it that you two? So Sam, well, you're. We should have him describe what he does. No, no, no. no. I don't. Gonna, I don't fully understand it. Doesn't matter. Okay. Um, Sam, what? Sam, what angle? When you heard we were doing this podcast, what angle would interest you to talk about? Oh, that's a good one. If anything. Well, I, I think I understood this as a topic about how this war, how this conflict impacts diasporas, how this uh, conflict impacts populations, how uh, this impact basically creates a, a, a vast humanitarian um, issue. And uh, how people across the world who are from the former Soviet Union relate or do not relate to this war. Okay, so what, uh, well, that's that's hold on, hold on, hold on, no, 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 no
I, I see this very clearly. So Sam is very good at understanding because it's his job, the Russian military machine, uh, the, the in-depth war as it plays out. My bigger uh, sort of look at this is from the people, the immigrants who are here, uh, both from the former Soviet Union, who, you, who some people might consider to be Russian, who are not really truly Russian, uh, who might be uh, from Ukraine, uh, you know, what the relationship between, you know, as you see the, the sort of relationship being played out between Russia and Ukraine, how people are interacting on, on a human level here, who have been here, who've been friends, who've been family, who've, uh, you know, who've known each other for years and years. So I'm more of a personal human aspect of it. Oh, that's fine. Okay. You know, so I, that's, actually, that's, that's I the question I was going to ask. Well, no, but, but, but oh, that's you have to. I want to ask you as well. I want to ask you as well. What no, but I was going uh, to. I was going to ask that that be one of the topics. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you get out of this? What do I get out of this? Um, what do you? I, uh, Other than the free um, coffee and water, water's always free. Uh, I'm getting the free electricity for my electric car. Yeah, of um, yeah what do you hear? Uh, it, it's a serious topic, and it's uh, it's like um, echoes from my parents' uh, experience. So, in my view, is I'm trying to figure out what Russia thinks they're doing um, because they must have something in mind because uh, it seems insane from this perspective. So, but I was going to say just. As two dudes from the area, call it Soviet ex-Soviet Union, call it Russia, Soviet bloc, Soviet bloc. Uh, how, you know, you've got Americans out here, you know, people here that will encounter you and say, "Hey, you know, I noticed a slight accent. Where are you from?" A, how do you answer? And B, do you, is the next sentence, "But I'm not for what's going on," or how do you handle that? Because most Americans, I think, are ignorant of, of a lot of the situation. So how, how does, you know, I, I can imagine, I know Daniel a little bit from, um, you know, prior podcasts and discussions and lunch and stuff. So I can imagine how he feels. But how do you handle that when someone will go, oh, you're from Russia, you're one of them? Because all of a sudden, you know, Americans are very binary. I'm not sure, so sure about that. So, Sam, I'll let you, since you are video bound, I'll let you kind of get into that, and then I can I can pop in and I can comment on my own experience. So I think I think it's important to recognize that each each individual is going to answer that differently. Um, it depends on how long people have been in the United States, why they came here, uh, what's the reason for staying or living in the United States. I think one of the major, I guess, responses that people like Dan and I can deliver is that, well, we left uh, what was once former Soviet Union uh, prior to all of the divisions, prior to all of the independencies. And uh, we actually left a country that was one and whole. Obviously, it had its issues, its problems that were beginning to bubble up to the surface. But we left one country. We didn't leave um, one of the 15 individual states. And so we left a nation when we left a state that uh, had a different set of problems and a different sort of ways of dealing with them. And what happened after our departure is, is a different history, which either does or does not have to do with us, again, depending on who you are and why you are in the United States. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you, so to me, it's, it's a very loaded question because I'll give you an anecdotal situation. So, obviously, everybody's on Facebook, right? There's millions of different groups that are on Facebook. I run a couple of those groups. Uh, so, for example, I run a group called Russian Cape Cod. Okay? It's basically Russian people who speak Russian. Now, to me, I've been here for 32 years. In fact, just celebrated 32 years in the U.S. two days ago. Uh, to me, when I say Russian, to me, it's a Russian speaking, but I've seen at least a hundred groups on Facebook that I'm a member of, or I see my friends are a member of, have begun to change the names from Russian something to Russian speaking 
something right. to really sort of. So you, you would say Cyrillic rather than Russian, just to really. Or, 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 right. So like the Russian Cape Cod group became Russian speaking Cape Cod. Now, the other thing to consider is it depends on who you talk to. So me and Sam are both Jewish. So if you really sort of look at the history of our people in the former Soviet Union, it becomes a, a, a melting pot of locales. So my mother was born in Belarus. My father is from Ukraine, was born and uh, initially raised in Ukraine. They ended up both in Moscow. So how the hell do I answer it really? I can say, you know, I, I don't mind saying I'm Russian. Uh, I don't, you know, I'll say I'm from Russia originally. I Well, most of the time I would probably say I'm from the former Soviet Union, Sim. Would, yeah. would you say the same thing? Yeah, I would. I would. And again, it really depends who you're talking to. If you're talking to uh, people who are knowledgeable, knowledgeable about those issues, uh, who have a sense of what's going on, I mean, it, it's one type of conversation. If it's, uh, if it's someone off the street that asks you that, you can say former Soviet Union. Again, you have to gauge the conversation based on who you're talking to because of the very charged nature of this conflict and how some people feel about that. Well, let me ask you, so I, I know that uh, Mark and I both, our families are, you know, in my case, four generations back are from uh, Russia and uh, Poland. And Mark's are from... Well, my parents are, born, are ethnic Hungarians, this is how I answer yeah. it. But the town where my father was born, Umvar, was in Hungary, then Czechoslovakia, when there was mm -hmm. such a thing, and is now Western Ukraine. Yeah. So this is this ends up working out backwards, but I keep thinking that uh, that as uh, we are Charlie Abdo or whatever that was, whatever the correct. Oh, yeah. In this case, it works out completely backwards on the sort of the uh, the parallels. But the point is, I think there are a lot of folks uh, in this country who have the same roots. There are many who don't. So I don't know what sort of prejudices you're running into. I would hope they're less, certainly here on the East Coast, but maybe they're not. I was called the Russian prick yesterday on Facebook. Well, well that's, 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 that's anyway. right. That's <laughs> so I could that's be a you. prick, but don't call, you know, don't necessarily. Uh, yeah, your, your, your background does, does not inform your prickliness. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, people <laughs> see, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of different things that are happening. There, People are refusing to speak Russian. So, for example, there is a certain subset of Ukrainians who are now refusing to speak the Russian language, which, in my opinion, is wrong. <laughs> there are, I'm not afraid to say that there are, that maybe we're over, how do I say that? I have people who work for me in Russia who are completely against the war who have families, who need jobs, who need to feed their kids, yeah. uh, who are 1,000% against the war. Yeah. And yet they're put a lot of the times into the same category as the Russian, the Putin, the Putinists, people who are for Putin, for the war, for destruction. And I don't also necessarily think that that's correct. So I have changed topics entirely. It's the topic I've been interested in. Um, I'm not sure either you can answer, but what if there's anything rational about what uh, Putin is doing? What is it? Is it solely is it is it a land grab, which I assume is what it is, or is it um, the NATO issue with respect to Ukraine? Do you have any sense what if if we had somebody who was a, a Putinier here? Um, what would he or she have to say about uh, an arguably rational justification for a conflict, though not to the extreme nature it's gotten? Yeah. Well, if you look at the open source media, if you look at the information coming out of Russia, especially recently, uh, if you look at how Russian media describes its conflict and what kind of information is posted on Russian media, then what you, you're getting the sense of is that uh, Russian military, but not just the military, it's the intelligence community, it's political elites um, and others want to essentially dismantle Ukrainian state writ large so that it doesn't just present a short-term um, challenge to Russia with respect to NATO or 
basing or EU, but uh, so that it does not present any long-term challenge to the Russian state whatsoever. There's a lot of writings by Dugin, who is one of the uh, basically kind of um, uh, whispers behind the throne, um, and him and his allies put in the Russian media, in official state media, statements about denazification of Ukraine and essentially dismantling parts of it um, so that there is no one single Ukraine that can either turn to the West or present a challenge to Moscow. So, so the, rationality here, the rationality here, if you will, are um, or is essentially that the, um, the, the cost is, is worth it, the ends justify the means, that no matter how many losses Russian military may suffer, in the end, the result is worth it for Russia's long-term security with respect to its goals. Now, again, a lot of these decisions were made in a relative isolation from the larger discussion of these costs with the rest of the population. And it's not clear if the country is actually aware of the full scope of losses it has taken in Ukraine because of the media nature and because of the nature of this discussion inside Russia proper, because we are getting... Can we hold you up there? Let's yeah. go back for one second, because you're, you're marching forward, uh, which is nice. But you're saying that this was not a... This was essentially to create a no-man's land between uh, Russia and uh, NATO allies, uh, to NATO allies, at least, if you will, on that side of Russia. The initial plan has failed. The initial military plan was this very quick blitzkrieg type into Kiev to uh, to kind of cause the shock to the Ukrainian society and the military, to change the government, depose Zelensky, and that plan has failed in the first week and a half. And then the Russian military had to change its plans and its aims. It had to pull up additional resources and launch a much larger mass-scale operation for which it probably was not very well prepared. And it is that why was, sort of- Why was, why was uh, Putin not interested in actually um, expanding Russian territory to cover all of Ukraine? Why was it merely a question of emasculating uh, the Ukrainian government and any notion of statehood? Because they're very different. If, if Russia would be able to depose Ukrainian government quickly and efficiently, then the thinking was probably um, the country, the R Russia and Ukraine would be able to avoid large destruction. Because if, um, if, if Ukrainian industry, if, if Ukrainian infrastructure is destroyed and damaged in the context of a sort of a, a Russian invasion, the thinking was Russia would still have to invest into uh, repairing, into sort of restructuring the country. Uh, Again, the thinking wasn't this mass scale invasion with so much damage initially. And this uh, this uh, analysis was rather erroneous, as we have found out, as the world has well, found I'm, out. You keep wanting to jump ahead. I know that's what you talk about most of the time, at least from what I can tell. But just so the rest of us understand, if, if Russia's goal was to... Um, a masculine, not to conquer the Ukraine for the, perhaps the reasons you just said, which is conquering Ukraine would now give it essentially an invalid, um, uh, not sibling, but uh, dependent state that it now has to rebuild. If the goal was to emasculate it, um, I assume the reason for that was solely NATO related. Why then would Putin not be willing to accept a statement by uh, Zelensky and the government in Ukraine um, that it simply will not become part of NATO. Why is this conflict going on, notwithstanding, I think, Zelensky's agreement that he would um, forego the NATO membership? What am I missing? I think these are the questions that we're going to be asking for a long time after the conflict concludes in one shape or another. A lot of this isn't really clear, and a lot of this is not easily understood, not just by the layperson, but also by experienced analysts as well. A lot of this conflict doesn't necessarily make sense from a purely military standpoint. A lot of the consequences of the last 40 days do not make sense from the, from the political standpoint, certainly from the economic standpoint, because as we have discovered that the world acted very swiftly, 
targeting Russian economy with sanctions that it probably was definitely not prepared for. So again, there's too many questions and very few answers. And probably a lot of it has to do with how Putin decided and how Putin makes his decisions and whether or not he had the full sort of aperture of options, whether he had the full information presented to him, who was actually presenting that information to him and why, as the Western intelligence community now indicates, why didn't um, Putin's cabinet deliver uh, adequate and uh, objective information to him, why they were afraid to say what needed to be said about the Russian military itself, the quality of the invasion, and most importantly, the quality of the Ukrainian military and the quality of the Ukrainian resistance, which has proven extremely formidable. Well, okay, so hold on. So, Dan, can you can you give any insight on that? I know you're um, about must be fourteen thousand miles away or something. Yes. But, you, but you're part of the community more than Mark and I are generations back. I'm only first generation, so. Okay, well, I'm, okay, I'm you want me to comment on on the reasons for Putin going? To the extent you have any sense or even a guess as a member of the community on why this has gone sideways, because it seems insane. Look. The, What's the goal? So I am far from being as knowledgeable on the issue as Sam. We all can bullshit about something. Right. So this is a complete sort of bullshit possibility that, you know, as you're laying in bed and you're like, what the is going on in the world and why is this happening? You have thoughts. The, The problem with the former Soviet bloc is that Unfortunately, no matter what country you look at there, it's full of corruption. Um, There's backhanded deals everywhere. And so in reality, one of the reasons that I also think Sam could be right that we might never know and we might be wondering uh, uh, for years to come. I don't know. I mean, just throwing things out there. Who knows? Maybe maybe. There was some kind of an agreement between Putin and Ukraine before, and Putin felt betrayed, uh, and some parts of that agreement weren't, you know, weren't uh, done by Zelensky. I don't know, uh, and he decided to to just to to show his strength, and he went mad in a sense, you know, and he just went after that. Well, here, here's my question, because you know, obviously, Ukraine was involved in an American scandal with uh, the last president here. What is it about Ukraine that makes it sort of the punching bag for everybody? It was, the, it was the punching bag for Trump. It's clearly the punching bag for Putin. Let me comment on that. And we have to be careful about what we say and what kind of words we use. So I wouldn't use the I would not use these terms. Look, Ukraine is a very personal issue for Putin. Because if you go back to the end of the former Soviet Union and the emergence of independent states, uh, Russia has emerged as the key and the central nation for practically all of the former Soviet states, save the Baltics, which became part of European Union and part of NATO very quickly. Almost every other former Soviet state retains economic, social, cultural, uh, military, industrial relationships with Russia. And Russia is the predominant state in those Uh, in that network, in those relationships. And so when Russia started to recreate a set of systems and interdependencies with itself in the center, like the Eurasian Economic Union, which it envisioned to be the uh, sort of the the competitor to the European Union or the competitor to the Chinese sphere of influence. The Eurasian Economic Union is made up of the bulk of the former Soviet population and industrial strength encompassing Russia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Ukraine was supposed to be a very significant part of that uh, network. And Ukraine has the second largest population after the after Russia. It has the second largest economy, had second largest economy after Russia. Uh, Ukraine and Russia probably have um, as close as a relationship as, for example, or had prior to 2014 as, for example, United States and Canada when it comes to cultural historical issues, but most importantly, these sort of socioeconomic and cultural interdependencies that were built 
into um, into the relationship between these states after 1992. And so not having Ukraine as part of that network was a tremendous loss for Russia going forward, that it could not really emerge as this central state that could compete as an equal with the United States or European Union or China without Ukraine. And so tracing that back to 1992, with the arrival of Putin, we're starting to get the sense of sort of his thinking, his rationale on the Russian-Ukrainian relationships. And so several years ago, um, uh, he was making statements about that. Recently, he kind of, um, he penned this article about Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian history and how it relates to Russia. So this almost became a personal issue for Putin that uh, Ukraine could not be independent and anti-Russian in the sense that it could be independent and pro-European Union and possibly even pro-NATO. And finally... Okay, so there was an article in the um, either New York or Atlantic this weekend, and I forgot who they quoted, but it was uh, somebody uh, uh, early on who said that, that consistent with what you said, that Russia plus Ukraine that combination will, uh, and I don't think it was Churchill, but uh, maybe that era, will can, the combination of Russia and Ukraine can dominate the world, can be a central figurehead as a world power, um, I guess sufficiently active to, to battle back China and the like and uh, Europe. So that seems consistent. That comment from way back goes along with what you said, um, that would also go along with not destroying Ukraine um, in the course of this conflict, which now seems to be happening. Or is that not really the case? There's a lot of destruction in Ukraine, but does it turn out that a lot of the value of Ukraine is still in the, the wheat fields? And so from Putin's perspective, if he's rational at all, he's knocking out the major some of the major cities, but he still gets he still gets the, the bulk or enough of Ukraine that they can be a power if they move forward together, which would never happen. Well, on you know, one hand, obviously. Hang on a second, Sam. Let me let me let me comment on something. I, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily know if I agree with everything that you're saying. I understand that this this might be a position, but it seems that Sam. It, uh, Sam. Uh, Sam. Yeah. Uh, it seems that this is a lot more personal and a lot more visceral than yeah. than yeah. than any kind of a political ambition that he has. Because if he had a political ambition, uh, cooler head, heads would have prevailed. Weeks ago, and and you know, steps would have been taken in order to stop the war, keep what's been what's been sort of uh, you know the advances that have been made, and even possibly stretch out the strategy over a longer period of time. Do a combination of political and and a uh, 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 war combination. Putin is, is not an idiot in the sense that he completely realizes that Ukraine will never really submit at this point, uh, and he's never going to get an ally in the face of Ukrainian people. So I, I don't know if there is a bigger sort of strategy here at play that he's looking to 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 bring the two countries together and make a bigger block. Does he so, have any evidence of, does he have any, is there a history of his being sort of a, there was a quote in uh, Gauss in the New Yorker last night, uh, a quote from a biographer, he apparently said, when I was in a playground, wherever he grew up as a poor boy in the playground, uh, somebody attacked him and he learned to be a bully. Is that what this is? Is, is there any evidence of your rationality other than that story? Well, well look, uh, again, um, going back, kind of zooming out here, right? If, um, if a different military strategy would have prevailed early on in the war, if Russia were to launch the campaign that it was technically prepared for, and if it would have been very quick, if, if it could have uh, overwhelmed Ukrainian military um, and captured Kiev as they intended, not with the force that was launched, but with a different force, um, then there would have been um, pressure to sort of um, recognize the fait accompli, stop the fighting, and negotiate some kind of outcome out of this. Again, if this was a different type of an invasion, but Putin. Uh, may have under, underestimated this, the, the Ukrainian resolve, certainly um, underestimated the quality of the Ukrainian military and uh, the Ukrainian desire to remain independent of any significant relationships 
with Russia, save economic ones. And so this is important to note. Even after um, the um, uh, Russian involvement in uh, eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass, in 2014 and 2015, for several years after a fully belligerent relationship was on full display, Ukraine continued to trade with Russia because there were economic relationships that could not be broken. And so Russia was able to sort of sever those relationships only around 2018, early 2019, when it claimed that it was able to import substitute a lot of military tech that was coming from Ukraine. Nonetheless, Russia's gas pipelines were still running through Ukraine. And so um, fully severing a relationship between Ukraine and Russia was not possible because of these economic interrelationships. And obviously the historical context, the cultural context was also there. And so Russia began to craft its own narrative that uh, Ukrainian society and the Ukrainian history isn't necessarily that of an independent state, uh, but rather something that Russian state has created. And in the meantime, Ukraine was actually going back to history, uh, calling to attention the fact that a modern Russia or historical Russia emanates out of Ukraine proper. Let me go back to what you were saying before, because I was I'm just trying to remember my comment. It, it, two comments. Number one, you were talking about sort of you know the what appears to be the strategy, and and as you were saying that. I, I was thinking it's it's almost like a spurned lover. Well, if I can't have you, I'm going to destroy you. That was that's one thought, which is the way. It, again, I'm reacting to what you said and what I'm seeing on TV, which I can barely watch. And the second thing is, I look at Hungary, where my my parents were from. It, it is aligned with uh, it, you know NATO, but yet but they're also aligned with you know. Um, uh, Orban is uh, uh, an ally also of Putin. So in a sense, you you have a, a you have the case of a state that actually has it both ways, has one foot in in, in both worlds. Well, actually, I, I think Hungary is under enormous pressure right now from the European Union, precisely because of what you just said. Um, and so there are there's a lot of discussions about Hungarian responsibility as a, as a member of the European Union with essentially um, adopting a set of policies and politics, right? Hungary and Russia, meaning Orban and Putin, were able to um, find common language because Hungary, like uh, Russia, uh, lost a lot of its territories and its uh, fellow countrymen after the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, when parts of historical Hungary ended up in present-day Czech Republic, Slovakia, Romania, etc. And, and for Putin, when he talked about the tragedy of the, of the fall of the Soviet Union, he was referring to, uh, as we found out later on, to the, um, to the fact that many of the Russian compatriots ended up in other states. Um, some ended up without proper rights and, and proper recognition by their newly um, um, established home countries. And so that to him was an enormous tragedy. Uh, but again, Ukraine remained a, a rather personal issue for him in the context of what Ukraine means to the larger Russian sphere of influence and the relationships established between former Soviet states and Russia. I think it's important to recognize another fact that unlike European uh, states or unlike United States or maybe other countries around the world, Russia doesn't really recognize the concept of a neutral state that a state on its border must either be pro-Russian and therefore does not present a danger, or it, it is already in the, um, in the adversarial camp and presents a certain set of problems the way, for example, Russia sees the Baltics. And so- How, 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 how does Russia view Switzerland then? I know it's not on its border, but that's an example of a so-called neutral state. Well, I mean, it recognizes the existence of, of neutralities, but um, when it comes to its own safety and security, right? If you look at the if you look at the states aligned at the Russian border, uh, until recently, they all were very much essentially, um, if not openly pro-Russian, then at least um, uh, adopting a set of policies that didn't, from Moscow's standpoint, 
threaten or challenge them. If you look at Central Asia, if you look at Belarus, Georgia wanted to uh, join the uh, European Community and NATO, and Moscow executed a campaign that crippled Georgian um, uh, future in, in the European Union because there are two frozen conflicts in, inside uh, Georgia now. And so, again, Ukraine could not be an independent state and not be openly pro-Russian from the standpoint of Kremlin security. And I think it is that type of thinking that fed um, a, um, a reasoning sort of or, or uh, influenced reasoning in the Kremlin, whether or not it was based on actual facts and whether or not um, whether or not the Russian president actually got a full set of figures to work with. Right. Okay, hold, on. This conflict. hold on. Hold on. Hold on. All right. So, okay. So my thing is, okay, all, all those predictions, all those assumptions, all those desires are out of the window. I mean, the, the, you know, whatever he thought he was right. going to do, it's, it's gone and done. I mean, right. th that's it. So where the hell does this go? How, you know, yeah, what, what, what's, what the hell is the future? I mean, what, what now do we... Uh, great question. You know, how do you see it now? I mean, and he must realize that it's done and gone, all of those ambitions, if he truly had them. No, no, why would he, he realize that? Well, because he understands that it, it, even if he takes over the entire Ukraine, he's going to have a partisan war on the ground for years but and years he, and years. Yeah, so, but that went on. Understand, I mean, maybe this is a culture where you can live with ongoing wars. And, and maybe you also have to, you know, you have to recognize that, and this is not something that was covered in the, in the Western media a lot, is that there was actually low-level insurgency taking place in the Russian portion of the Caucasus for years after, after the conclusion of the first Chechen war. And there were terrorist acts, explosions, there were kidnappings. There was this kind of low simmering conflict that Russia was able to contain and control within its own borders. So it's not about living with that. It's about what's the level of tolerance to that type of uh, conflict. Um, of course, Ukraine is many magnitudes greater than Chechnya ever was. And again, it's not clear if this is fully understood in the Kremlin, at least from our standpoint. Here's the important uh, issue to recognize, that uh, Russian media now, or the Russian government is controlling the media that it has attempted to stamp out any independent media outlet to craft its own narrative. And that enabled Russian uh, government to craft a narrative that would allow people to sort of rally around the flag, whether or not they agree with the war or not, right? There are official polls that talk about like three quarters of the population in Russia supporting this campaign. It's not clear if these polls are objective, um, but, but so again, in the absence of media competition, it is possible to craft a narrative that would enable the government to sort of tell the population that this is a long-term fight and struggle and that the country would be able to survive it. Sam, there was a, there was a, a uh, article in today's uh, Times, I guess, uh, that um, the point, or maybe an opinion piece, and the point of it was that um, the only way to battle back Putin at this point is to turn his own people against him. Um, and that, of course, goes hand in hand with your comment about the media. Uh, I, as not just his own people. I don't think you can turn the, the the people are completely brainwashed. If you're talking about his own people in the government, no, no, no. It's the they clearly the population. have the population. And saying. the question is, as an observer for the last no, uh, 61 years, it strikes me that he's able to stamp on the people routinely, and that none of this should be bothering him. Now, the news, the news, the news media to me seems like a small annoyance, and it does seem to get the people rallied up. But he's always been able to crush his own people. Why would that statement in the Times? Um, I think it was Times carry any ring of truth at all. Because Why people really mad at him. Because prior to 2018, there existed a social contract between Putin and his people that as long as the Russian economy was more or less stable and as long as the people's livelihood wasn't threatened and as long as people lived better than in the 1990s, had opportunities, could look towards the future, the people would not necessarily complain uh, or or counter or try to sort of um, disagree with what the Russian government and Putin himself was doing, right? 
How does it matter? What's the, when, when has that government turned over because of the people since, what, 1917? No, but I, I think he made the, this is like a very big point. So, so let me finish. Contract. Yeah, yeah. Let me finish the point. So this contract existed, again, prior to 2018, even a few short years after the Russian seizure of Crimea and its involvement in eastern Ukraine. Because the Russian economy was able to handle the pressure from sort of the international competition, uh, the industries were growing, incomes were more or less stable, people had opportunities to travel. Uh, Russia was a better place, objectively speaking, than it was in the 1990s. And as why long as that, that contract was in place, as long as that contract was in place, um, people weren't necessarily rebelling against the government. And they were what? occasional, yeah. but they were occasional. I can answer wait your question. Wait, wait, wait. What evidence is there that the people in that government, can, in that country, can do anything? Because Wasn't it in 1917, the, the last time that happened? Well, no, but uh, throughout, you know, post World War II, what? they were rebuilding. They lived. Rebuilding. When well, have let the me people finish. in that country let ever done anything? That's not the point. The point is is that their life was better. I think Sam said it. That their life was better than their parents' lives. And the contract, which I, I think Who is cares a very, about the contract? Not, if you let me well, talk, it's important. I'll, I'll, it's actually very important because even even when uh, there were certain low-level protests against pension reforms in Russian right. states, um, and uh, which I think took place around like 2017, 2018, and mass-scale protests against the government in, in Moscow in 2012, this didn't catch on with the rest of the population because the rest of the population wanted to see themselves doing better with respect to the 1990s, whether or not that was true. Of course, if we look at Russia as a country, right, there, were, there are several regions which may have very high standards of living, certainly Moscow at the top of that list with nearly European standards of living, while the rest of the country was struggling but the government was able to craft a narrative that even in those struggles, even when things weren't necessarily going well for Let's those people, they were still doing better than the 1990s, and this was because but, of the oh, 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 oh. I still don't feel like I haven't answered this question. Can you answer the question? What? From my perspective, the people in that country have almost no ability to overturn a reasonably strong government, period, so that the social contract is just an easy narrative for us all to pretend it matters. What really matters? How? What really scares they you? They have the ability. They don't have the desire to turn it over. Do, when is there any proof they've had the ability? Do they really the, have the, 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 the ability? The proof in the ability is, in my opinion, which is a little different than what you're asking, but World War II. Yes. Okay? That's the proof of the ability of the Russian people. Okay? Uh, it's, it's also proof of the ability of the Russian government not to give a shit about their people. Wait, 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 wait. I correct 1917 was, in, was the people or was that actually just a political party? Yeah, there have been many revolutions. So at the point, let that if Daniel finishes point and I'll try and get my point yeah, out. So, so <laughs> it, it, Russian, when you think of Russia is huge, yeah. huge. Now, when you think here about Framingham, which is not Boston. Our fair city. You, you are still in our fair city. You're still thinking malls, uh, you're thinking restaurants, you're thinking all that stuff. When you're thinking about Russia, you think Moscow and, and the, the greater sort of area around Moscow, but everything outside of that is basically you're knee deep in shit. Yeah. Okay. You, you, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, but, but you know, Majority of the people, so the well-off people who are in Moscow, a lot of them have left as a result of this because they don't want to lose the money. Okay, they don't want to lose their abilities. They already have contracts outside. Some of them have left. Some of them have left. The ones who have stayed, a lot of them are still making money because of whatever arrangements they have. Majority of the Russian population are not that well-off. All of their lives, they've drank, They've lived a semi, a, a, a life barely over the limit of. They've struggled. Yeah, that to say the least. So when somebody, you know, there's a reverse fear here. There, there is. I don't think there is a wonder of how great it's going to be in the future. I think it's more about how to prevent getting totally screwed tomorrow. 
And so anybody who is able to give any kind of stability, any kind of level, they are absolutely for that person. And so Putin has become the, the you know, I'm questioning whether. Am I wrong, Sam? No, just I'm just questioning whether this really matters. It, well, my okay. question is the whole point of, my, as I understand, the whole point of the sanctions, the whole point of the sanctions is to A, put pressure on the oligarchs, which we hoped would get us somewhere, and it may or may not. And number two, to put pressure on the people so they will revolt. And the question is, is that really something that could I don't ever think happen? The so, so this is this takes us this takes us now to the present, right? And I mentioned the social yes. contract as sort of this larger framework that allowed Russian president to rule since 2000 with uh, without any significant challenges, no matter how we look at that here in the United States or the West. The sanctions as imposed today have a very significant crippling effect. And if if the Russian economy isn't able to bear the weight of the sanctions, and if the regular people are starting to feel that, that is when we're going to sort of see that unraveling of that social contract between the Russian president and his people. And it's not even clear yeah. if the, everybody's is going to go into the streets. What's important is to uh, recognize that, for example, in, in 1991, I mean, in 1991, right, December of 91, I mean, the protests were mostly in Moscow, right? They weren't necessarily widespread across the rest of the former Soviet Union because the rest of the country the rest of Russia and the rest of former Soviet Union really weren't uh, understanding what was happening. And so if if people go to the streets en masse, for example, in the capital city, because things have gotten so bad that the normal livelihood is threatened, that's when we can potentially see a change. It isn't clear if Putin was able to calculate the weight of the sanctions. It's not clear if he understood how powerful those sanctions are going to be against his economy. Do you believe that it's possible? So it sounds like the West is not going to easily fight Putin back without risk of nuclear uh, war. Uh, at least that's what he's telling us. And so we can't throw missiles at them. We can't put troops in Russia. Um, we probably can't even put troops in, the, in Ukraine, number one. Number two, it sounds like we're trying to put pressure on his people to put pressure on him. Number one, that's going to take, a, what, at least years, at least a few years, number one. Number two, is it not the case that he can still battle them back, notwithstanding social contracts? Um, the country is largely not that populated. How does do these do these riots go anywhere? Tiananmen Square didn't really get the Chinese people that far. What's going to happen if there's going to be a Moscow Square or whatever it's called? Well, I don't think they had the same social contract in China. Bullshit, but the social contract is bullshit. No, no, the it's, social it's, contract it's, is it's not bullshit. Not, actually. It's, it's not. Let, it's let actually, me get it out. It's a very important framework. It. It's a very important framework to view uh, the stability and the survivability of the Putin regime. I mean, that's that's how um, he was able to govern um, relatively peacefully from his standpoint between 2000 and February 2022. If things get so bad that uh, the economy begins to crumble, and if this begins to affect regular people, we may uh, see some kind of change within the government, right? Some kind of changeover. Look, Khrushchev was removed by the Politburo in 1964 because uh, the Politburo did not see him as capable of handling. Um, a range of problems encountered by Soviet Union vis-a-vis -vis United States. And again, whether this palace coup is possible or not, a significant change must come from the government because the people in Russia today cannot fully mobilize themselves for a wide-scale right. um, uh, set so of protests to, no, to launch the cascading effects. The people can't mobilize okay. themselves. So, so why would the Politburo, whatever it's called now, why? What's going to make them make it? All right, I'm, I'm going to get. I'm, I'm I'm going to say a completely exaggerated example, but but right, you know, great. in my in my non-professional way, this is the way I think about it. Sorry, Sam. <laughs> Last days, May of 1945. Russians and Americans are in Berlin fighting. There's still German troops that are fighting that are dying for Germany, 
The only people who are looking to make the change are the people who are right, right-hand people of right. Hitler. Right. The only way that I think I, that I see that Putin is ever removed is when the people that are closest to him realize that they're losing more than they're gaining, That's and right. that there is no more ability, and there is never going to be the ability for Putin. To make them more money. This, this is when they are going. This seems money. like that's we're the deal. negotiating an entire country now based on a hope that the, either the people will rise up or that somebody, uh, in whether the oligarchs or otherwise, are going to but see a potential. That's rise. the premise. I'm not gonna, that's the premise that Sam keeps raising that I keep trying to echo in on. I won't use social contract. Here's the deal: it's a mafia regime. Yes. And if as long as you let me do whatever the hell I want. I'll make sure that incrementally your life is better than your parents and your kids' lives will be better than yours. You let me do whatever the hell I want and you guys can live stably in a stable way. You can educate your kids. You'll have food on the table. You can go to the store and buy stuff. You can go and leave the country and go on vacation. It's a deal. My point is that the people can Sam, am I wrong? Hold on. My right, point is that's, those that's, that's a good point, right. So the incremental improvements place that took place every year after 2000, um, created the impression that life indeed was better and safer and more stable than in the 1990s. Whether or not that was true for the larger uh, hold population, on, hold on, so because those changes were actually true in the capital, right? In Moscow and St. Petersburg and a handful of other states, there were very visible uh, improvements made to the livelihood of the people. And so, um, that enabled the government to craft a narrative that with with Putin in the in, in you know in government things could get better. The other narrative was who else is there if Putin isn't there to keep Russia stable, to keep it secure, to ensure that things keep improving. Again, it isn't clear right now whether that reasoning is still applied. And certainly the government is crafting the narrative that it is able to survive these sanctions and this pressure. But if Again, if the pressure is felt by the regular people, not just by the richest and the most powerful, then this becomes a very different type of conversation between the Kremlin Damn. and the population. What is the timetable? We are talking years now. Ukraine will be crushed or under a long-term war. Why is there the only solution not a military solution? Third. <laughs> I'm military sorry. Solution. Are you referring to the Russian military solution against Ukraine or... Than a, NATO military, a NATO military solution that at least protects the Ukraine. Uh, no, because that uh, at least at least initially, and this is how the United States president views it: getting NATO involved uh, pushes, um, you know, it, it creates a situation of a direct confrontation between nuclear powers over Ukraine, and can raise the specter of a nuclear actual nuclear exchange. So what is the likelihood that Ukraine will survive long enough for these sanctions to take place, to take effect on the people, for the people to figure out how to rise up so that they can actually uh, remove Putin? How long Ukraine is going to be smoldering by then? It is smoldering. I, I, okay, well, I, I, I don't think this goes further than two more months. Why not? Militarily, militarily, uh, a lot would be decided in Ukraine in the next couple of weeks. As the Russian military uh, got exhausted in the first 40 days, it has to take some kind of a breather, it has to take a pause. But there's evidence that it is beginning to uh, sort of rearm, uh, reposition itself for a limited set of gains, meaning if, if the Russian gains now include all of Donbass, region, the Donetsk and Lugansk, plus the southern region, the um, the Crimea and then um, area north of Crimea, then uh, that could be presented as a significant sort of achievement because the rest of Ukraine, as we just mentioned, is no longer a challenge because of so much damage that has been inflicted on their industry, the military and the civilian population. How do we know that wasn't the plan to begin with? Soften up the uh, soften up the main body, then go for the edges. I don't. I don't think you would go intentionally lose twelve thousand soldiers. Maybe they don't give a shit. Oh, they don't give a shit about soldiers. Yeah. Uh, so soldiers so are irrelevant. So, so the initial plan not, again. The initial plan was uh, this regime change via uh, a fast attack into Kiev, uh, right? Without necessarily 
launching this wide-scale destruction, which is just absolutely horrific. Um, that was the initial plan, but the plan was poorly executed because Ukraine, Ukrainian resistance was apparently poorly understood in the Russian military, or at least the true um, facts about the Ukrainian, the quality of Ukrainian resistance wasn't delivered up uh, to the highest sort of, you know, to the top decision makers. And so the question is, why wasn't that information communicated? And why uh, why did the Russian military have to change the tactics to then launch this wide-scale invasion that it was fully prepared for? How do we know that the goal wasn't simply to take the Donbass and other regions? Why do? How do we know? I say you could have done that quickly and easily. Well, it, well, it was probably one of the goals, but it probably wasn't the primary goal. The primary goal, as I mentioned, was uh, a, a kind of a quick attack, decapitate Ukrainian government, and take over the country without uh, a lot of uh, a lot of destruction. Once that no longer became possible, once Ukrainian military uh, started offering very significant resistance, then the larger invasion was launched. But again, even that effort was poorly coordinated, as became clear very quickly. Okay, so now there's going to be a long simmering battle over this region, uh, and Zelensky and, the, and Ukraine is never going to give up its territorial claim. So is this going to be just a continuation of what's been going on for the last, what, since 2008? Or That's, one option. That's one option, yeah. So, Sam, so I was... If propaganda is the game in Russia, okay, I was thinking yesterday, this might sound stupid, but, you know, there's all these opportunities that are now being created in order to save and help the, the millions of Ukrainian refugees. Why not announce on the border with Poland, on all of the other borders along the, the sort of Ukrainian theater, that if any Russian military personnel who truly believes, because... These are kids, these are 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old kids that are going into battle, and we already know they're showing up there under sometimes full pretenses to where they're actually going, at least in the beginning they were thrown that way. Why not say, look, if you're uh, uh, you a military person and you want to defect, we're guaranteeing you a, a uh, um, some kind of a citizenship amnesty. or a path or an amnesty. Families. Okay. Families, you know, and, and will help the families or whatever. But wouldn't that be a huge propaganda vehicle in order to be able to, to sort of get it through the, to the Russian people that even the soldiers are not willing to fight on behalf of the... I, the if I were Putin, I would, then as, I would then kill a few of the families. Which I'm sure he's already done. He's done and he does it anyway. Well, my point is you can quickly stop stamp that out. Dan, what, what, what you said is, is obviously is a very logical solution. It's difficult to execute logistically because those soldiers would have to cross the entirety of Ukraine to go west towards Poland or, or Slovakia. So, um, I, look, uh, as far as the quality of the Russian soldiers, yes, uh, it has been surprisingly poor. Russia does have well-trained forces. Russia does have well-trained and well-prepared battalion tactical groups, but as um, as the as the severity of the conflict became clear, um, the entirety of the Russian force had to be involved. And it, again, Russian military was training for all these years against a a defensive, or actually was training it was training for a defensive operation. Uh, even as recently as late 2021, in an ex joint exercise with Belarus. They were training for a defensive operation when they were attacked by uh, a much superior technologically advanced force, such as NATO and the United States. This offensive combat isn't something that Russia trained for. And again, this is one of the questions we can't answer 100%. We don't know for sure why these decisions were made uh, and what they're thinking in their headquarters as they're losing uh, soldiers, losing equipment, um, and obviously as, as, as evidence mounts that a lot of these efforts may not be as successful as originally envisioned. Okay, hold on. So here's how this ends, both the podcast oh, and, one, and the conference. I have one last question. But no, I want to I yeah. ask my question now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, if, if you buy my premise that this is a mafia state and, and the, the continuation of these 
sanctions puts enough pressure on the oligarchs and all the people, again, like you're impacting all the, the Don and the whatever the rank and file of these, uh, the oligarch state, that's the Politburo now is all the oligarchs. Well, we've now screwed with them. At a certain point, they're all going to go to him, I think. And, you, you know, Vlad, you got to go or they'll take him out one way or another. Because I think it's like a mafia state. They'll have that's to, not, they'll have it's to. not entirely, I mean, it's, it's not entirely applicable because, right, uh, look, during the Soviet times, uh, a lot of people in Stalin's closest uh, retinue knew the extent and the scale of the damage that his policies were doing to the Soviet Union and to the people. Um, but they didn't take him out. They were all afraid. They were afraid of him. They were afraid for their own position. There were maybe other factors, even as they saw that the purges and other policies were undercutting the very strength of the Soviet Union that was announced in public statements, right? And so um, there are people who are around Putin that view their position as key to his, or rather their position as, as tied to his own survival, right? If Putin goes, they may go as well. And this may be right. preventing them from making the moves that you're discussing. But but the minute that calculus changes is when Putin loses support. Loses support is my point of view. So this is beyond an oligarch going on the news saying I was crying I couldn't get a private plane today. And it, this is you know you've got a lot of people who made money because of Putin and Putin makes money because of them. There is a certain point where again the calculus changes and you know. The guy that brought us here isn't going to be the guy that gets us to this next level. But also, so they'll change them out. But also, Sam, I, I want to say there's a huge difference between those times and nowadays. Back then, the value was you, you, your riches were inside the Soviet Union. Now they're not. Now they're not. Now it's the international money, it's the dollars, it's your children who are in London, who are in US. Uh, it's the money that you have in U.S. dollars spread across the world. The, the, so before they were afraid to take out the leader because they could manipulate their existence within inside the borders of the country. It's very different now. So I think money is going to play a huge role. I think he's either going to be removed by the people or better yet, I think he's going to be served on the platter and not killed but served on the platter to the international community to stand the trial. Yeah, that may be. In order to, yeah. To, yeah. to facilitate some kind of a right. cease right. Correct. and better agreement. Right. His head will roll. That's right. His right. head will roll, right. but that will serve as a... So let, me, let me change topics as we get to the end of this, which is quickly. Um, how safe a game is it for Putin to be playing with uh, China, which seems like it could overrun... Putin and his army readily, easily, and Putin must know that. So he's got to be very uncomfortable with China backing him, and China must love this opportunity. How does that one play out in a, in a paragraph or so? It does look like China loved this opportunity. There is no specter of a military confrontation between China and Russia. That has been settled a long time ago. That's no longer the argument. It is now the economic relationship. And of course, China sees itself as uh, one of the key nations uh, that are capable of, that is capable of uh, solving a lot of Russian economic issues. And even Russians themselves, especially in the IT sector, which has been disproportionately affected by the sanctions, also see China as a way to, uh, to counter a lot of these sanctions. Uh, again, the full extent of that isn't necessarily known. For example, China did say that they're willing to uh, maintain their information communication technologies relationship with Russia, continue to invest continue to sort of gobble up the Russian market. Um, and if, if, if the sanctions exert so much pressure on Russia that, that it doesn't have a choice, it will accept a much larger Chinese role in the Russian economic affairs. But there's also a limit to how much China can do that because China is also plugged into the global supply chains. It is very much part of the global economic network. China is one of the most important countries in the world when it comes to a lot of economic factors, right? And so it doesn't necessarily go all in uh, defending Russia because China can also end up under um, under pressure from United States or other countries 
because of the support of Beijing for Moscow. So this is sort of an evolving relationship right now, and the news can almost change on a daily basis. Uh, China certainly sure. sees its role as um, as very important. It's a mediator. It's an investor. It's an economic supporter. But we don't necessarily see a lot of sort of Chinese rushing into uh, uh, into the Russian market and saying, "Okay, sell everything to us so we can save you." That's not the case. Okay. Also, okay. So I, we've come to the end of our hour. This was um, you got a thought? Because I thought was, he should introduce himself again because you didn't yeah. have it recorded. Oh yeah, so well we haven't just been recorded on this, but one last time. So Sam, we're going to have all we'll have program notes and your name and everything. Mark's pointing out that the Microsoft recording wasn't on, but the others were. Oh.